Thank you all for being here today. Uh, my name is Barrett, and I'm not one of the pastors here. You might have noticed that. The 12 years I've been attending Westview, this is the uh, first time I've ever been asked to deliver a sermon. So uh, I'll see if it's 12 more years before I get my second invite. <laughs> uh, then I'll know how it went. Um, yeah, it's good to gather with you and to open the scriptures together. I'm a little bit nervous, but you don't look too scary, so uh, maybe we'll just be here and uh, do this together and dive into God's Word. I promised Gary that I would have you out here by 1 o'clock at the latest, uh, so uh, let's get started. If you've ever been to a live performance of any kind, music or theater or dance, uh, in the modern era, assuming that it wasn't in complete darkness, then you've experienced something. You've experienced someone behind the scenes telling you not only what to look at, but maybe more crucially, how to look at it. And this is because there are different kinds of theatrical lighting, and they employ different kinds of lenses. We've got a couple theater lights up here. They have some specific types of lenses. I'm not uh, a technician, so I'll keep it really simple. There are two primary kinds of lenses in theatrical lighting. There's one that when the light goes through it, it makes the light focused, and it has hard edges around it. So if you've ever seen a spotlight with a hard edge, or sometimes maybe in a, uh, a theater scene where there's a lot of drama or tension, they'll, they'll, they'll cut it in really close, and they'll have tight, hard lines around it. So that's one kind of lens. Uh, another kind of lens, when the light goes through, uh, it diffuses the light and softens it and spreads it out. So there's soft sketches around those lights. You might think of a scene of, uh, of young love or innocent romance, nice soft lighting uh, around it. The lens that we use in our lives has a profound effect on not just what we see, but how we see and how we understand. So the question I want to dive into with you today through our scripture is, what is your lens? What is your particular cultural point of reference? And how does that lens impact the way that you see God and the way that you enter into his work in the world? Now, at the present moment, the world looks particularly foggy. Anybody feel that? Kind of blurry, it doesn't really matter what the lens is. We get news, we get entertainment, sometimes our parents, uh, our schoolmates, our work colleagues, they all give us a lot of ideas about how we should see. And when we as Christians attempt to navigate this vast array of both diffused and murky light, uh, or hard, sharp light telling us what we should think and what we should do, we tend to have one of three responses. When we look at the world uh, through our personal lens, sometimes uh, we fight what we see. 
You've heard people talk about culture wars. Uh, you've probably seen, maybe you know, uh, people of all kinds of factions who commit to various social and political causes. See, some people find their purpose and their identity in identifying and fighting some kind of an enemy. That's one response. Uh, another response is that we control what we see. See, in order to maintain our already established point of view, keep us comfortable, we, we validate it by surrounding ourselves with only those who agree with us. You know, only those who think already like we do. Sometimes, uh, even only those who look like us. We create kind of an echo chamber to feel safe, to keep all others out. And if we don't fight or we don't control, then maybe some of you abstain from seeing at all. You choose not to participate in certain aspects of culture altogether. You shut out the perspectives of others and or you silence your own voice. You find it safer somehow to just simply not be noticed. And how do we choose which of these three paths we employ? How, how do we choose whether we fight, control, or abstain? What's our personal point of reference for these responses? Well, beyond genetics, the answer is largely human culture. We place our identity in living within a particular set of boundaries uh, and accepted norms that we agree to. So we say things like, I'm a Canadian, so I do things this way. Or we might say something like, I'm a Christian, so I don't do things that way. Or we might say, you know, I'm not a snob, so I drink Tim Hortons coffee instead of, you know, whatever Tyler drinks. <laughs> I didn't get that in because he's not here, and uh, so Tyler, if you're watching, go back to bed, you're on vacation. <laughs> okay. Uh, sometimes these boundaries are a conscious choice, and sometimes we're not even aware that we're doing that, because it's just baked into our culture. We're not even aware that we do things a particular way. Uh, an example of Christian cultural boundaries uh, that students bring to me on, on a regular basis as my, in my day job as an acting professor uh, might be, what kinds of stories can I or can I not tell? So whenever I assign a scene or a monologue to a student, they come with personal and, and, and cultural point of reference. Some of them might say, you know what, I'll do anything because it's, it's not me up there, it's the character, I'm acting. Uh, other, other students come to me and they say, well, you know, I'll, I'll do this, uh, violence is okay, but sex is not okay, I'll do this, but not this. Um, and then a, a, another kind of student might come to me and say, well, I don't agree with any of this, um, can we just do, you know, stories from the Bible? Um, which stories from the Bible <laughs> uh, would you pick? The R-rated ones or, you know, just the ones you're comfortable with? <laughs> But here's the thing, human, local, personal culture is the lens that we use in life. And when we fight or control or abstain from looking at certain aspects of life based solely on our human or cultural lens, we risk acting out of a misunderstanding of God's character. We have to be careful. We sometimes limit our understanding by drawing boundaries that have more to do with human culture than God's kingdom culture. And we can even be in danger of transposing our lens onto God or onto Scripture as though our cultural lens is somehow more divine than others. I'm going to turn to our text now. This is a story in Genesis 38. 
Uh, and it's going to test some of our cultural lenses. Maybe some of you read it ahead. Uh, if you did, that's great. If not, you can follow along your Bibles or your, or your apps now. Uh, this story involves all kinds of cultural particularities that don't really seem to have lasted into today's Christianity. As you're looking that up, I'll tell you that Genesis 38 is sandwiched into the Joseph story that's told in chapters 37 to 50 of Genesis. Uh, and Genesis 38 relates the story of Judah, who was the brother of Joseph, who in Genesis 37 is the brother who suggests that Joseph be sold into slavery rather than killed. In Genesis 38, we get this somewhat odd-seeming sidebar on Judah's life and offspring. And it's a fairly long passage, but it's a narrative, so we need to look at the whole thing. Uh, so it's going to take me a few minutes to summarize, which I'm going to do right now. Uh, and as I summarize uh, the, the chapter in kind of three parts, you can read along in your Bible if you want, uh, or you can just listen if you like a good story, uh, whatever you prefer. So our first 11 verses of the narrative, Genesis 38, introduce us to what happens to Joseph's brother Judah after he prevented Joseph's brothers from killing Joseph. We learn that Judah grows up, he moves away from home, and he has three sons named Er, Onan, and Shelah to an unnamed Canaanite woman. A Canaanite woman means non-Jewish, married a non-Jewish woman. Uh, Judah looks after his growing family by arranging for another Canaanite, another non-Jewish woman named Tamar, to marry his eldest son, Er. The Bible tells us that Judah's son, Er, was wicked and that his wickedness resulted in Er's death by God's hand. So Tamar was widowed, and as was a custom, she was then married to the second son named Onan, Judah's second child. But Onan refused to impregnate her by withdrawing during the sex act. And this too was regarded as wicked by God, resulting in Onan's death by God's hand. So these events leave Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, twice widowed and childless. Judah, although he's responsible to provide Tamar, uh, to provide for Tamar by marrying her to his third son, Shelah, he puts off his fatherly duty out of fear that he would lose his last remaining son to God's wrath. He'd already lost two, he didn't want to lose another one. So what he does instead is he returns Tamar to her father, saying, you know, once Shelah reaches adulthood, then he will have Shelah provide offspring to Tamar. And so Tamar returns to, his father, to her father. Following along, that's part one. There's more. Just keeps going, this story. Our next 11 verses move us forward in time. Uh, this is after Judah's son, Shelah, uh, has matured. He's grown up now. Uh, and during this time, Judah has also become a widow, so Shelah is really the only family that he has left. Tamar hears a rumor that Judah is going to a town called Timnah to shear sheep, and she decides to act. She's dressed in her customary widow's garment, but she removes it, but she also puts a veil on her face, and this allows her to observe Shayla and Judah as they pass without being identified. And what she sees is that Shayla is fully grown, but Judah has not yet fulfilled his previous promise to her. Judah is completely oblivious. He's unaware that, uh, of Tamar's identity. And what he does is he propositions Tamar. He thinks that she's a prostitute because of the clothing, the veil that she wears. And now for a second time, in this proposition, Judah promises Tamar that he will pay her later. Tamar has good reason to suspect Judah's follow-through. And so what she does instead is she, she secures Judah's signet, his cord, and staff as a pledge that he will send payment later. These are items that would give her proof 
their personal items that give her proof that she acted, interacted specifically with Judah. So then she then accepts Judah's offer and she conceives his child. And after this meeting with Judah, Judah then take, or Tamar then takes her veil off. She returns back to her ex culturally accepted garments of widowhood. As for the payment, Judah tries one time, tries once to make good on his pledge. He doesn't even go. He sends his friend here of the Avalites with a sheep. That's his payment for this act of prostitution. Uh, when they go to send it, they can't even find Tamar, and so Judah decides, you know what, I'm not going to pursue the matter further. The Bible tells us that Judah was concerned he would be laughed at if he tried again to find the personal items that were in Tamar's possession. End of part two. Still with me? Last part. Three months later, our story concludes the narrative by focusing on the character of Tamar and her child, growing child. Uh, Tamar's encounter with Judah had made her pregnant. Of course, it was not culturally acceptable for an unmarried widow to be pregnant. So uh, the townspeople actually brought her to Judah, who was still technically responsible for her provision. And they told Judah that she'd become pregnant out of wedlock through prostitution. The punishment for Tamar was to be death by burning. And Judah said yes. He advocated for that punishment. But Tamar, in order to save her life, revealed that the father of her child was the man who had given her these personal belongings she'd taken from Judah. That caused a bit of a drastic change of heart in Judah. Judah admitted that he was the father of Tamar's child, but he went a step further, actually. He also admitted that he was to blame for her actions because he neglected to give Shelah to Tamar in marriage. Because of his failure to act properly towards Tamar, Judah claims that Tamar's actions are actually more righteous than his. Tamar's life is spared, uh, and Judah does not sleep with Tamar again. Then the story concludes by revealing that Tamar wasn't just pregnant, she was pregnant with twins. See? There's always more twists and turns. Tamar actually had two boys to Judah named Perez and Sarah. Circumstances of the birth order were, were unusual in that Sarah was partially birthed first, then pulled his hand back in, which allowed Perez to claim the status of being firstborn. That's the story. We learned from other scriptures later on that Perez would be part of the lineage of Jesus. That's important. Okay. We look at this a little bit. What is going on here? There are different kinds of texts in the Bible. This passage is in the form of narrative. We need to go through and see the whole narrative to kind of understand it. But the central feature of narrative structure is that there is a conflict, some kind of trouble or obstacle that propels the story along. We get three categories of obstacles or problems that come up in Genesis 38. Uh, and as I unpack these, I want you to compare how you personally, through your cultural lens, might view the obstacles in the story versus how the narrative use the obstacles or the problems. Uh, the first problem in the story is the death of Judah's sons, Arab and Onan. These deaths aren't really actually given much context, except that they were ultimately caused by the victim's own wickedness. Heirs is unspecified. Onan's wickedness is that he wouldn't impregnate his sister-in-law. Think about that for a moment from your cultural lens. Is it satisfactory to seem like a, a sort of yeah, that's a reasonable cause for death. They were wicked, wouldn't impregnate my sister-in-law, God kills them. In the narrative story, though, 
this is sort of glossed over, the problem in the narrative story isn't that it isn't God's wrath. It's that these deaths leave the widow Tamar destitute, with no male heir to provide for her and no land title. The wickedness creates a problem for others, namely Tamar. In 1 John 4.18, the Bible tells us there is no fear in, you know, there is no fear in love. Judah, however, makes some fear-based decisions in this story, and it's a problem. These fear-based decisions keep him from fulfilling his obligations to God and to Tamar through the cultural custom of the day of the right marriage. Unfulfilled promises are a second problem in the story. Judah is afraid of losing his son Shelob, his last remaining relative. I want to give you a quick sidebar on the right marriage because you need the context. Uh, in ancient Jewish culture, gender roles, the way that was laid out, created an economic problem for women whose husbands died. If the couple had not produced a male heir at the time of the husband's death, the couple's land was actually taken from the widow and given to a male relative, causing the widow to lose her connection to the home that she had uh, and her only economic means of survival, the land. And to address this problem, Genesis 38 introduces us to God's concept of Leverite marriage. Having the dead man's brother, Leverite means brother-in-law, it's Latin for brother-in-law, Having the dead man's brother serve as a surrogate father by producing an heir with his deceased brother's wife. It's sort of a first century version of a fertility clinic. Yeah. Because when Judah does not fulfill his promise to give his son Shayla uh, to Tamar, he's usurping this custom. He doesn't provide an heir, and he doesn't provide uh, an economic means of survival for Tamar. She's essentially sent back to the home and abandoned. Unfulfilled promises are a second problem in the story. And these, unfamiliar, or these unfulfilled promises create kind of a quagmire. That's what this text feels like. Uh, so much going on. Judah tries to avoid God's plan, and as a result, he ends up sleeping with his own daughter-in-law and then advocating for his, her death because of the prostitution he participated in. What is happening? Judah assumes that his point of view, his cultural lens, I'm going to protect my son because males are more valuable than women. I'm going to protect my son more than my daughter-in-law. Judah assumes that his cultural lens is the normative and logical way to approach the world. And this causes him to ne neglect God's plan, God's cultural lens for provision and justice for all, and it leaves Tamar as a victim in his wake. The results when we choose to operate from our own cultural lens of human understanding can really be disastrous. curious what's standing out to you right now about the story. I don't know if you read along or just listened to the summary. Um, what do you see? What's your lens on this story? Do you see the, you know, the, the obvious cultural differences in ancient Canaan and modern Canada? Some people might see the prurient details of the narrative that would never be told in Sunday school. Pretty sure they're not talking about that upstairs right now. Do you see Judah's actions or Tamar's actions of desperation as you know unnecessary or abhorrent or sinful or at the very least unorthodox. How do you see? 
What is your lens if you're to look at this story honestly, if you just came across the story in the Bible? Can you see the gospel in this story? Because despite what we would deem unrighteous actions, there's no condemnation for Tamar. The Bible's pronunciation of Tamar's actions of disguising herself as a prostitute and sleeping with her father-in-law is that they were considered righteous. Think about that for a moment. And furthermore, Tamar's son became part of the lineage of Jesus, a thing of extreme cultural significance and importance. Her final treatment reminds me of the adulterous woman in John 7, God's loving desire for our well-being is the grace of the gospel. And it's found right here in the cracks of this weird, strange Old Testament narrative. Like in Jesus' time where he explodes minds with the Sermon on the Mount by flipping the cultural norms of the day, there is here a clear distinction between God's kingdom culture and everyday culture. God's culture is love. We just get weirded out by the concept of leave right marriage, which some of you might. We miss the important fact that God's kingdom culture is to find a way to protect and provide for all people. This contrast with a human culture that treats women as property and said sons were more important than daughter-in-laws. And the contrast with Judah's everyday cultural wisdom up to thine own self be true, to quote a famous line from Hamlet. God's culture also accommodates. He said the practice of leave right marriage not necessarily because the actions themselves are holy, but because they incarnate his love and provision right into an everyday cultural structure that already existed. God accommodates our human culture, but he puts his will into it and he kind of upends it. And God is also merciful. God gives grace to Tamar and provides for her. See that? But you know what? God also gives mercy to Judah. Judah didn't get it right, but he was really quick to admit this. I don't know if you know that admit is one of the meanings of the names of Judah. Judah admitted and he humbled himself when he was confronted. And we see a bit of transformation later in the Joseph story in Genesis 44 in Judah. Judah offers to take his brother Benjamin's punishment upon himself and become a slave, a truly sacrificial offer of care for his brother and father. So God has mercy on Tamar and Judah. But when my Christian students come to me and they ask me if we can please just tell stories from the Bible, I, I sometimes ask them to read Genesis 38 and tell me which role they want to play. <laughs> I try not to do that condescendingly. Uh, it, 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 it's a teaching moment. It gives me an opportunity to have a conversation with them about culture and God and the lens that we see through. Because really, at first glance, I don't know if you wondered, but I certainly wonder when I come across the story, why do we need a story like Genesis 38 in the Bible? It says it's there to tell us what happens to Judah in the Joseph narrative, but to me, it more importantly teaches us to look through a different kind of lens. In these passages, God's kingdom culture is revealed if we go a layer deeper than the surface. We can, like in many Christian cultures, we can stand outside the narrative, across our arms, we can look at the sexual details, prostitution, kind of incest with disgust and horror. We can do that. 
We can, as a member of contemporary Western culture, read the story and point to issues of patriarchal systems and women's rights. These lenses might just dismiss this story as old-fashioned and irrelevant. In fact, there are many lenses that would fight this story or try to control it or just abstain from it altogether. But if we adjust our lens to see stories the way that God might see them, we are reminded that God's kingdom culture goes deeper than our surface actions to find an inner righteousness rather than an outer cultural righteousness. And aren't we all glad he does that? So briefly then, what does this story reveal about God and ourselves? Well, quickly one, his sovereign plan trumps ours. You know, Perez uh, was part of the lineage of Jesus. Uh, God was working to have Tamar be a part of that. His plan was that from the beginning of time. Uh, and God is working it out anyway. Even if Judah gets off track, even if we get off track, God's plans are not in jeopardy. But we do have the opportunity to align ourselves with them. Secondly, God cares deeply about those society makes little or no provision for. But thirdly, we need to attend to our own inner righteousness. Whatever the right acts are that lines up with God's, more than our outer cultural righteousness. Don't forget. You know, to do this, we have to know ourselves so that we can discern what about our actions reflect our human culture and what reflects God's divine culture. We have to be really honest. We have to really look at ourselves. And we need to choose the right driver in our life. And we also need to know that when we don't get it right, God has mercy on us. And we're going to need that. So I'm going to end with just a few practical suggestions, things we can just maybe do that help us to adjust our lens and cut through some of the fog. Um, God has blessed us at Westview with the opportunity to meet people who have a different cultural lens from our own. Oh, if you've looked around our church, we have a diverse uh, church here, and that's a great opportunity for us. Genesis 38 suggests that Judah actually isolated himself from family and geographically from some of his religious traditions. And Tamar, we know, was sent away back to her father's house. We don't have any indication that either of these characters had what we have today in terms of a local church. Multi-ethnic and diverse church can help each other open up our social circles, speak to a person we don't know, cross ethnic lines, and, and just learn from other people. If you want to take it farther, uh, have a meal with someone from another culture. It's going to help you to better distinguish your understanding of your own culture and assumptions of normativity. You ever have a conversation with someone and you say something like, so you speak a different language? By the standard, at this point of reference, maybe you would speak a different language. We need to, we need to uh, learn to understand each other. Uh, another thing you can do is to challenge yourself to read something, or watch something, or go see a piece of art that you might have a tendency to dismiss. It will stretch you. Look for God's truth within it, rather than justifying your own response to not even bother. You can also participate in cross-cultural mission work. You know, our team is, is gearing up to go to Rwanda in November, but we're not going just so we can feel good about ourselves, but we're going to learn how to see God through a different lens. 
and to help our Rwandan friends do that too. This partnership is a beautiful way to mutually support each other in developing a greater understanding of God's kingdom culture. I want to acknowledge that it's risky to do this work, take that step to meet someone we don't know, to learn about the culture, to try to eat with them in right ways. And it, it's risky. We might make mistakes if we do it. We might be vulnerable, but we can figure it out together. That's the blessing of a local church. My advice to you is to be gracious with each other and not avoid it. And finally, if this story tells us anything, it's that we have to acknowledge that God's sovereignty is over our own. You know, God is moving his plans to completion with or without us. There really isn't getting around the fact that God is God. If God can only acknowledge this or reject it, that's our choices. But if we are willing to acknowledge it, we can let that shape us. And we can become participants in God's plans, just like Judah did. First by acknowledging Tamar's actions with righteousness, and then abandoning his calls for punishment, finally by refusing to misuse or mistreat Tamar any further. A practical way to do this, I only know of one, really, is to acknowledge God's sovereignty by starting with confession. Humble yourself. Simply verbalize and pray. Acknowledge that God's sovereignty, his will, his plans are the starting point and the destination in our journey. God's plans are those. I want you to acknowledge from there you might take an action that you feel the Holy Spirit might be prompting you to take, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable. All right. As the worship team comes back, okay. I wonder if you'll just take a minute now to pray with me about this. You can just bow your heads. You're just going to pray in silence, just you and God. And can I ask you to begin your prayer by offering a humble confession to God that he is sovereign? Will you just acknowledge, just take a moment and acknowledge that God is God. If you can do that, that his plans are above ours, and that his plans are good. You can also thank God for giving us the opportunity to be involved in his plans and his purposes. And ask that he might adjust your lens so that you can do that. Just talk to God right now. I'm going to give you just another minute of praying silently to yourself. We're not going to draw, draw this out. Uh, before we respond in song. But in this last minute or two of praying, I just want you to think about this. Reading Bible stories and living our lives through our own lens, through contemporary societal cultural definitions of righteousness, really lead us to dismiss or miss important truths. But as you continue to pray, maybe open yourself up. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about something in your life that might be more of a cultural lens you're acting through than a kingdom lens. Ask God to help you not to be right, but to be righteous. Ask God to help you love, to discern, and to give you grace to navigate our foggy times. And ask God to help you to learn more about how he sees others in the world.
Amen. Amen. Amen.